For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. Today's show is sponsored by Opt-In Monster, and I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I am really excited about today's show. I'm going to be joined by Rohit Bargava, and we're going to explore marketing trends, and I think you're going to really love it. But first, I've got an awesome discovery for you. After untangling a school of anacondas, look what Michael Stelzner found. Do you need to grow your email list, or do you have a desire to get your list a little bigger? If you don't, you should. Here at Social Media Examiner, our email list is a key business metric. As of the time of this recording, we have over 350,000 people that we email every day at Social Media Examiner with our content. Why is it a critical business metric for us? Because it's the one thing that we have total control over. Facebook can decide what's going to show up in your newsfeed. Google can decide what's going to show up in their search, but only you can decide what's going to be transmitted over email to those who have opted into your email. And it really is the secret sauce for everything that we do at Social Media Examiner. And I'm so excited. I've been working um, with this product for about seven months. And I got to tell you, I love it. The product is Opt-In Monster, and it's our secret weapon. I'm really excited because I've been waiting to talk to you guys about it. Using Opt-In Monster, we have added 95 thousand email subscribers to our list in seven months, 95,000. And I got to tell you, it's taken what we're doing to an entirely new level. And I'll tell you how we use it. Uh, And basically, if you go to Social Media Examiner and you read an article and you leave the page, as you're beginning to mouse up to the top of the browser, uh, up pops this box and it says, hey, you want to get our free industry report? And it's got a a bunch of other data. And 7% of the people that see that box pop up actually put in their name and their email address and get on our email list. It's pretty awesome. So a couple of the killer features of Optin Monster that we use regularly is, first of all, exit intent technology. So the exit intent is the technology that knows that your mouse is about to leave the browser and go somewhere else. And it, it does what I call something called pattern interrupt up pops this thing on the screen that gives you the option to get something hopefully that you find valuable. And what's really cool is they also have effects. So with some services, you know, the thing just pops up on the screen. But in this particular case, you can activate their effects and they've got all sorts of different effects like swinging and wiggling and shaking. And these little effects just kind of stop you in your tracks 
and get your attention. And I've experimented with having the effects on and having the effects off, and my opt-in rates go up when the effects are turned on. In addition, and this is something we've only started using about three months ago, they've got this killer mobile option. You know, mobile users, it's always hard to get people on a mobile platform to opt into something, and pop-ups don't work on mobile, but Optin Monster has figured out a way to make pop-ups work on mobile. And I can tell you that of that 95,000, about 20,000 of those have come because we've enge- we've activated their mobile opt-in option, which is awesome. Now, the secret sauce that I think ties all this together behind all this interrupt technology and stuff is the fact that they do split testing. And this is really cool. With split testing, I can go ahead, for example, I recently did a test where I just changed the color of a button from orange to red to see whether or not it would actually improve things or not improve things. So you can run as many split tests as you want. You can run them as long as you want, and you can analyze the differences. Uh, This thing fully integrates, in our case, with a Weber, who's the email service we provide, and they work with lots of other things. So it just goes right in there. I love it. It is something that I know everyone I know who uses it raves about it. So um, a couple ways you can find out. Well, actually, the best way to find out about it is to visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash opt in. That is our sponsor link, socialmediaexaminer.com slash opt in. Please use that link so that they know that you came as a result of hearing about it on this show. Socialmediaexaminer.com slash opt-in is where you can find out more about Opt-in Monster. Try it. Thank me later. And I got to tell you if, you, if you go for it, you have to make sure that you choose the option for the exit intent technology because that is the secret sauce to making everything work. All right. Well, with that, let's transition over to today's show with Rohit. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Rohit Bhargava. And if you don't know who he is, he's the author of Personality Not Included and Lykonomics. He's also the founder and CEO of the Influential Marketing Group. His latest book is Non-Obvious, How to Think Different, Curate Ideas, and Predict the Future. Rohit, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to explore trends, why they matter to marketers, and we're going to review, reveal a few trends that I think would be very interesting to marketers. So let's step back for a, a bit, and why don't you share with me a little bit of your backstory and what got you here? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, spent many years working at marketing agencies. That was sort of my background. And um, doing that, I crossed industries pretty frequently. I mean, I would show up one morning and be working on marketing a toothbrush brand, and then I'd be in the afternoon working on an enterprise data client. Um, And, you know, that was fun because I had a lot of variety. And what I started doing kind of accidentally was making connections between different industries and saying, oh, well, something's happening over here and it relates to something happening over there. Mm. And that's kind of what got me started thinking about this idea of trends and one of the big mistakes that I think a lot of people who write these trend blog posts make, which is, you know, we always see these things that say financial trends or social media trends or pharmaceutical, you know, industry trends. And uh, my approach is very much not about like here's find a trend within an industry. I try and look at things from a much bigger, broader scale, and so that was what got me excited and interested in writing trends and trend reports. And and so my first one came out in 2011, and I do them annually. So I kind of do a new trend report every year. 
Very cool. So, um, so who, who were you working for before you went off on your own and what kind of marketing were you doing just to give a little context to our listeners? Yeah. Uh, wow. So, <laughs> um, so I was in, uh, Australia working at Leo Burnett, um, for about, uh, three years and there I was working on automotive brands and cereal brands and, um, uh, and we had like uh, consumer packaged goods types of companies. Gotcha. Um, and then in 2004, I moved back to the U S and I started working at Ogilvy and I helped start the digital and social media team back in 2004. Wow. Uh, which, you know, if you remember the kind of history, like, so that's pre Twitter, pre Facebook. And so we were just basically doing stuff with bloggers. Wow. Um, and that was, that was our team. Um, so we were pretty early to that. Um, and then that team just eventually kept growing and growing. And we were doing work for clients in financial services and technology brands and uh, a lot of retail and consumer brands, fashion. Um, and so, so I really kind of crossed back and forth quite a bit. So um, what kind of stuff were you doing for – I mean, when you say you were doing things for them, like what, let's go back like maybe three or four years ago. What kind of marketing were you doing just to give me a little context? Yeah, so – Three or four years ago, it would have been uh, mostly my role would have been mostly digital strategy. So, you know, what should we be doing with our website? Should it? How does it link with our social channels? Should we be on any of these social media platforms? You know, if you go back a little bit further, um, I was working on Intel's first social media guidelines, which I remember kind of sitting with literally a blank Microsoft Word document. Wow. Were you working with Ekaterina and Michael Brito? This was like pretty early, so I think it was before Ekaterina's time, but definitely, I think Michael was there, Brian Rhodes was definitely there, uh, Ken Kaplan, like they're just lots of really smart, smart guys. I mean, they, and they've been with, with uh, Intel for a long time. I mean, people tend to stick around um, at Intel. Very cool. So um, earlier you said that a lot of people write trends, and I mean, let's, let's explore a little bit about, um, let's start by talking about what's wrong with the way so many people talk about trends today. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest problems is that a lot of trends are self-serving. You know, like imagine I have a company that sells hammers and then I declare 2015 the year of hammers. You know, like, (laughs) I mean, you know, how convenient is that, right? (laughs) Right. And I think we see that like all the time that people just declare trends based on whatever they sell. And so it kind of helps them, but it's not actually a trend. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the way I define a trend is that I consider a trend to be an observation about the accelerating present. Uh, an accelerating present. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is um, what I don't do, it's probably easier to say what I don't do, which is predict things that haven't started to happen already. Mm. Um, and so accelerating present to me means there's signs of something already happening right now, and it's going to be more important, more impactful. It's going to start either changing the way that consumers make decisions or change the way that businesses structure their business models or do business. And so those are the lenses that I put on something before I actually consider it to be a trend and before I write about it. Excellent. So um, let's talk about why marketers should care about trends. I mean, let's step back at a high level. You know, what, 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 what's the benefits of understanding trends uh, maybe before your competitors do? Yeah, I think that, you know, probably the, the biggest benefit is to know, you know, to borrow a overused cliche word, you know, it's to know when to pivot. <laughs> right, right. Um, we hear a lot about pivot, and it's probably used improperly most, you know, a lot of times. Like if you're a bicycle 
um, if you sell bicycles and you pivot to become a coffee shop, like that's not a pivot. That's a completely new business. That's like a, that's like a giant leap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, an actual pivot is um, BMW deciding that in addition to manufacturing and making cars, they're going to start a program called Drive Now, which they've started where they rent electric cars. Mm. That's a pivot, right? Because what they're saying is, oh, there's a sharing economy and lots of people are talking about that and collaborative economy and how younger people don't want to own stuff. They want to um, share and, and rent it instead. And so they're experimenting with their business model to say, look, we can still make super high quality cars and that's still going to be our number one thing. But the way we distribute them doesn't always have to be through the dealership with a sale or a lease. We can actually look at renting them. Um, and that is smart. I mean, that's the way to kind of look at something that's happening in the marketplace and say, okay, how does that affect my business? Okay, so what I hear you saying is that if you can understand a real trend, then you can begin to quote unquote pivot and expand your business or product line or whatever into categories that are emerging. And and I guess what you're implying there is that if you can be an early mover into that space, there could be a lot of benefits that come from that, right? Yeah, I think that's one big part of it. And I think, you know, the other big part of it, I would say, is to understand what's already happening. I mean, it's amazing how many times in our business we see, I mean, just to take a, a social media example, right? You post two different pictures on Instagram, one gets four likes and one gets 40, and you have no idea why. Mm. Um, and that happens to all of us, whether in social media or just in other things in our businesses. We just don't understand why something happened the way it happened. And understanding trends gives you a bigger lens to be able to put some of these things in context and actually kind of sometimes starts that light bulb to happen to say, oh, now I get why this thing happened when I just didn't get it before. I didn't understand it. Well, and I guess just equally important as understanding emerging trends are also understanding downward trends, right? What is shrinking, right? Because so many of us build our business model. Like I think about the Fitbit. You're familiar with the Fitbit, right? You know what that is, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so Fitbit, Fit, you know, Fitbit is part of the wearable technology trend. But um, now that Apple has come out with something that essentially can do the same thing in a watch, um, I've got a feeling that that the um, you know the, that the perhaps the bigger trend of all these functions integrated into some uh, some bigger device that we already have, like an iPhone, um, could could make that business model go. And so not just understanding what's coming, but what what's growing, but what's shrinking might also be important. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, you know, last year I actually produced a, um, a book that was focused on trends in healthcare. And, you know, one of the biggest things people were talking about in healthcare at that time and, and kind of still is this, uh, this term of quantified self, which basically describes Fitbit and all of these things. It's like you can quantify your own activity, everything down to like how you sleep, how many steps you walk, what you eat, how, you know, what your body temperature is, like all of those things. And the trend that we identified was a little bit of a twist on it and we called it the over-quantified self. Mm. And I say we because I had a co-author on my, on my healthcare trend book. Um, but the reason we called it the over-quantified self was because we have all of this information, all this data, but it doesn't attach itself to our actual healthcare. It becomes little more than sort of a feel-good infographic. And the idea behind that is if consumers can collect all of this information, then the next step obviously has to be how does that translate into action beyond just taking more steps. Excellent. Now, one question that's going through my mind, we're going to get into a couple trends that you write about in your new book. But one of the questions that comes through my mind is how, 
and, and I know this is perhaps a massively big question, but I want you to try to simplify the answer. How, give, give, give our listeners a little bit of advice, like what are a few things we should ask ourselves when, before we latch onto something and accept it as a trend? You know, said another way, how do we exercise discernment and know that this really is a trend and not just a couple people that, that are very influential singing praises of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, one of the telltale signs and one of the biggest things I look at is, is this a trend across multiple industries? Um, so is this only happening in one pocket, in one place, or is this happening in multiple places? Mm. That's one of the biggest indicators that I look at. Um, the other one is, uh, is it actually changing behavior or is it just hyped because of a particularly popular product or service that just got launched and is getting a lot of attention. So, you know, is it actually a trend or is it just the Apple watch and everybody's excited about watches Exactly, because of the Apple watch? Exactly. So you have to discern the buzz from the reality. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, one of the the techniques that I use for, for doing that, which works really well is um, I spend an entire year gathering information. Um, And so the majority of the year I'm, I'm just gathering information. Um, I'm not analyzing it. I'm not figuring out what the trend is every week or every other week and doing a blog post about it. I collect information and I curate it. And the whole idea, and basically in the book what I call the haystack method, which sort of flips the idea. We tend to think of trend people who do trends as trend spotters, and we tend to think that they find needles in haystacks. And my philosophy sort of flips it over and says, if you spend enough time gathering all the hay and putting it in one place, you can decide where to stick the needle. Mm. And that is the trend. And so that's the difference between trend curating and trend spotting. Interesting. Well, let's go ahead and talk about a couple of trends. Um, one of the ones you talk about in your book is called glanceable content. So why don't you tell us what that is and maybe give an example? Yeah, I think um, glanceable content is essentially uh, a reaction to our shrinking attention spans um, and the fact that now we see buzz, uh, BuzzFeed uh, headlines that tantalize us to, you know, see the thirty things about Home Alone that we never, li- you know, we never noticed before, <laughs> you know, or like, you know, you can't help clicking on that stuff, right? Right. Um, but there's, there's, you know, that alone doesn't make it a trend. What's interesting is this idea of the shrinking attention span and all kinds of content is leading to innovation in unexpected places. So you've got, you know, a team of, uh, of MIT researchers working on studies on what they call glance behavior, which is basically like how quickly can we read something in a, in a situation where we need to consume it quickly. So for example, looking at the dashboard of a car while you're driving. Hmm. Um, and how does the font choice used impact that so that you can read even more quickly? And so they've tested different fonts on like 0.00 microseconds of response time to say this is the optimal font to use for a dashboard. Right. So all that type of research is happening. Um, and while that's happening, you have a lot of people in the world of content marketing talking about new ways to create content that is highly consumable and highly valuable. So you have demand media creating these short videos on topics that people are already searching for. You got Vine, right? You got the 15 second yeah. videos and all that stuff, which the, I thought was crazy when it came out. Yeah, exactly. You got, you know, those super short, super short videos and, and, um, 
uh, and Twitter. Of it might course. even be six seconds. I forget which one's which, but uh, yeah, you've got you know yeah Twitter is thirty seconds I think, and then you got Instagram. Yeah, Vine, and Vine. Vine's six seconds, and um, the other one is uh, is more. Yeah, yeah, Instagram I think is fifteen or something. But yeah, interesting. You know, I, I've heard people use the phrase snackable content. Is that similar to this, or is this, or is this a little different because this is not just a snack. This is the ability for someone to digest it rapidly. Um, it is, I mean, snackable content, I actually do write about snackable content as a, as a piece of that, because certainly that's one way uh, to do it. But I think the other thing is, um, that it's creating new models where we can connect with content in a different way. So if you imagine, for example, the way we typically consume news is sort of detached and, and the journalistic method is, look, no bias, no personality, just tell me the story and tell me both sides of it. That's what journalists are supposed to do. But then you've got this hugely popular daily email called The Skim that's just taking off among uh, women between the ages, I think, of like 20 and 35. And it is a daily digest of the news along with personality. You know, there's an editor who's kind of turning the news into uh, a more consumable format and sort of saying, this is what you need to know every day. And all of these women are reading this religiously every single morning. So do you think that um, do you think that because um, because you, you you know the automotive industry you saw that the automotive industry was was doing stuff and because you saw all this other kind of stuff that um, well actually let me rephrase the question I guess what's the implication to the marketer here like what what's the take home lesson if this is really a trend what how should we respond yeah, so um, one of the things that I try really hard to do, um, which I, I hope separates this book and my trend work from what a lot of other uh, trend predictions or futurists produce, is I try and make it really actionable. And so every chapter of the book that talks about a new trend includes a couple of tips and suggestions for how to actually use the trend. Mm. So in this case, I know one of the tips that I shared was if content has to be glanceable, then you know that the headline becomes even more important. So anybody who's ever done email marketing knows the subject line will will like kill you or help you succeed. Um, and it doesn't matter how beautiful your email is. If your subject line doesn't convert, nobody's ever going to see the email because yeah. they just won't open it. Um, and now I think we're adding that sort of same discipline to all forms of media. Um, and if we're not, then we're missing out. Excellent. Um, let's talk about underperfection. This is another trend, or no? Wait, you call it unperfection. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> unperfection. What yep. is what is unperfection? Um, let's start there, and maybe we, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, unperfection was kind of based on this idea that we love things that show a human vulnerability and actually are not completely perfect. We prefer them, in fact. Mm. Um, and so you think about like uh, the success. I mean, it's it's just across every single f um, area that we might consume. You, so you think about uh, the popularity of the bad guy cartoon hero, all the way back to Shrek to Megamind to like you know these heroes that are imperfect and yet they they still kind of capture our our hearts. The Despicable Me guy grew right. 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 Um, and then you uh, kind of think about uh, also like the Christmas sweater, ugly Christmas sweater phenomenon, right? Um, which is just taken off and nobody can even explain why, but it's just like become a thing. <laughs> Every Christmas, people have these ugly Christmas sweater parties. Um, well, why do you think? Why do you think that's? I mean, like 
And I've been hearing for the longest time that, hey, just turn on your your smartphone and hit record and and sometimes and don't do a lot of editing and you know people will love that because the real you will come out. I mean, why do you think that there is this trend towards unperfection? Do you think that marketing or Madison Avenue, if you if you will, has kind of ruined it, and now people are like kind of ignoring really polished works of content, and, and instead they're more looking for something that's more real that they can relate to. Uh, I don't know that they're ignoring polished forms of content, but you certainly do have the phenomenon where if a marketing video is too professionally produced, people just their their bullshit radar goes off, mm. and they think, oh, I'm just being manipulated, and they stop paying attention. Right. Um, and so you definitely have you definitely can overproduce something for sure. Um, but I think to your question, the reason why I think people connect with that is the same reason why, you know, for for uh, years people have been able to sell furniture that's made from natural wood that has like the knots in it right. and is imperfect. You know, like that imperfection actually makes it more authentic. And as a result of that, we feel a deeper connection to it because it's more authentic. Interesting. Well, you know, I mean, just to give you an example for this podcast, I I tend to edit my ums and ahs out of the first maybe 15 to 30 seconds of the show and then I leave all the rest in <laughs> because I think I think people want to hear the real me. I mean, I've had people fall off of beds while interviewing them and I left it in and I can't tell you how many people said, that's hilarious, you know? And I just, I, I think this medium podcasting allows us to be unperfect in a way that no other medium can. And I think that's part of what makes it so alluring and attractive is that we're not forced up against a, we've got three and a half minutes till a commercial break. You know, what do you think? I mean, do you think that's part of the reason why podcasting has taken off? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. Um, you'll appreciate this example. I mean, you think about NPR, um, for anyone who's an active listener of NPR and yes, the Diane, NPR. Diane Reem show, right? <laughs> Very well polished, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because they have they have plenty of like super baritone guys reading the news. Nobody remembers any of them. But Diane Reem, if you've ever heard her show, she has a totally quirky, strange, um, weird voice, right? Like it's not a voice that anyone else has. And she actually has a medical condition that causes her voice to be like that. And it's mm. super scratchy and it sounds like she's, you know, like 90 years old. Uh, but people love – and it's slow – but people love it, right? Because it's distinctive. And when you turn on NPR and you hear Diane Reem, you know it's her. That's There's true. no confusion. That's true. Awesome. So unperfection. I mean, I guess what's the take home that we should we should let ourselves make mistakes when it comes to the audio and the video? I mean, part of me is like with the written word, I don't think people are willing to let unperfection fly. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, I think the biggest um, thing to remember here is being unperfect or imperfect is different from being broken, Mm. Um, right? Like a typo is broken. That's not like unperfect or that's not imperfect. And that is not something that people appreciate. Um, But going into uh, McDonald's and getting the egg white McMuffin, which looks like it's been cooked by humans as opposed to the regular McMuffin that looks like it's a perfect hockey puck, you know, like that, (laughs) <laughs> is authentic and a little bit more authentic and a little bit more human. Mm. Um, you know, and that's why they made it that way. They could have made the egg white McMuffin a perfect hockey puck also, right? Um, Very they point. chose not to strategically. Very good point. Excellent. Okay. Um, the reluctant marketer trend. <laughs> I yeah. know there's a lot of people listening right now that are reluctant to market in general, but it's our jobs. But what, what is a reluctant marketer? What, is, what does that mean? 
Yeah, I think that you know this was sort of inspired by the fact that there's a lot of top marketing leaders, CMOs, you know, the CMO of Walmart, uh, Beth Comstock from GE, you know, a lot of these folks who are um, actively rethinking whether CMO, chief marketing officer, actually describes the value that they bring to the organization and what they do mm. anymore. And there was actually a panel a year and a half ago uh, hosted by AdAge where the CMOs on the panel were suggesting so many different titles instead of chief marketing officer that that actually became the topic of the recap article in AdAge because they wanted to be known as chief value creation officers, chief customer officers, chief innovation officers. Like All of these were broader than just marketing. Um, and that alone doesn't make this trend of the reluctant marketer, but when you put that together with content marketing and the idea that being overtly promotional and trying to sell, sell, sell in every moment versus trying to be useful and answer questions um, and use content marketing to actually do that. And uh, it sort of shifts the role of marketing away from being more promotional and being more like sales copy style marketing to being something that is more valuable. Um, and I think something where the great marketers who are rethinking their role in the enterprise right now are a little bit reluctant to say marketing is going to be the f- thing front first and foremost because we're thinking about marketing in a broader way. You know, one of the questions I'm thinking about right now is can a company force a trend or does a trend need to emerge organically? And let me give you an example. I'm thinking about Facebook, all right? Facebook has decided to depreciate YouTube videos in their newsfeed and um, appreciate, if you will, uploaded video. Said another way, they're giving newsfeed preference to videos that people upload to Facebook and they're not giving preference to links from YouTube and Vimeo. I'm wondering whether or not this single move from a company with the audience as big as they have on Facebook is actually creating a trend or if it's more in response to a trend because here you've got Twitter, they came out with Vine, right? And um, that was probably the first salvo in, in into a native video front. And I'm just, I'm trying to get my brain around, you know, whether or not a business can actually make a trend as big as Facebook um, or is it, you know, help me unwrap this a little bit and then let's talk about video because I, I'm kind of intrigued by it with the new Mercat or Meerkat and everything else that's going on with video. Yeah. Well, I think that um, companies alone don't make trends, um, but they can be a major factor in why something becomes a trend. Mm. Uh, and to your point and your question about, uh, video, I think that you know the the trend there or the the kind of broader picture there is people a a it's becoming easier to publish video um, and the quality is getting better so it's actually watchable instead of crap right um, because you got yeah. your smartphone with you which is better than the camera you had two years ago right yeah and and you know it corrects for dumb things that we do such as like anti shake and the sound quality is better even if we're too far away and so it corrects for our own stupidity right right. Um, and that makes it, you know, for most of us who don't know what we're doing, um, so it makes it watchable, uh, whereas before it wasn't watchable. It's, you know, but uh, as long as people don't do idiotic things like record video vertically or you know stuff like that, which is just stupid. Raising my um, hand, I've but, done it. I've done it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing back then, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like we all have to learn that stuff, but we are learning, right? Right. But I think that you know what they're reacting to, what Facebook's reacting to, and this happens a lot, especially in social media, is you know 
the dominance will move from one platform to another. And the only thing that that will spark is some sort of innovation so that uh, the tools become easier for people to use. So in that case, you know, what's going to happen because Facebook made that move? There's going to be a bunch of new services that make it easier for us to upload video to three places at once instead of individually. And we're going to all start using those tools to upload stuff instead of uploading directly to Facebook or to YouTube because we just want it to be everywhere at once. Well, you know, it's intriguing. If we break down this video thing, and I've been thinking about this and watching this for a long time, for the longest time, everybody has just said, we need to embrace YouTube, right? And they have just taken the YouTube video and they've essentially brought it into their social network, right? LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, dot, dot, dot. But then um, you've got Twitter who comes out with a native video platform, uh, which they called Vine. And then you've got Instagram coming out with their video thing and then you've got Instagram coming out with hyperlapse and then Facebook does their native video thing and then Twitter comes out with a Twitter native video thing that's 30 seconds I think somewhere along the line they realize wait a second all we're doing is helping YouTube grow here we've got enough money we've got enough capital we want to keep people on our networks why not why not let them watch video on our networks and we'll have the metrics we can eventually come out with video advertising and then, of course, you know, um, you've got the live broadcast inside of it with, you know, these devices, you know, these, these apps like Meerkat that was released at South by Southwest, where you can do live broadcasting directly from your smartphone. Um, I, I, is the trend here, um, is the trend here user generated video that they're trying to tap into? Um, or is the trend here just video in general? Or is there another trend, which is like, hey, we want to be autonomous? I'm just curious what your thoughts are as a big platform. You know, I yeah, I think um, most of these companies probably realized a long time ago that YouTube was getting all of the benefit. Um, the challenge that most of them had was that none of them wanted to take the financial hit of supporting the bandwidth that's required in order to stream video. Mm-hmm. And so if there's one kind of macro piece here um, that I think is driving a lot of this proliferation of video services, it's that bandwidth is lowering, is getting you know more affordable and uh, they have more money. Um, so I'm not sure that bandwidth's getting that much more affordable, but the platforms have more money. And they're all public companies now, and they have to keep innovating too, don't they? Yeah, and they have the money to put into it, right? Because like, hey, it's it, you know, streaming that much video is an expensive thing to do. And you know, for a long time, when YouTube was growing and getting all of this video, a lot of the competitors that could have done it looked at them and say, "Hey, let YouTube pay for it," right? And they actually feel good about it. Right. Um, so they they gave yeah they gave up the the user, um, but they also kind of felt like, hey, let them pay for all the bandwidth and we'll just plug in and link into the videos and it's better for us because we save all that money. So it's short-sighted thinking, but it's easy to understand why that would have been the case. Awesome. Um, Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about why they ought to pick up your book, Non-Obvious. Just give us kind of a high level on maybe what the marketer that's listening right now might, might gain from the book. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, like I said, I've been doing this trend report for five years. Um, the only difference between my previous trend reports for 2011 through 2014 and this year is that this year I'm actually taking people behind the process that I use to identify the trends and sharing all of the background behind how they can start to do that for themselves. And so that's why it's a full length book this year as opposed to just another uh, trend report. Which is, you know, I mean, it's a significant trend report. Every year it's like a 130 page um, visual slideshare presentation. 
Um, so it's a significant thing, but this year I went even bigger because it's the fifth year and I wanted to take people behind it. So I think if you're a marketer or a business owner who wants to be able to not just understand what the trends are based on my research, which you know hopefully is useful um, and share some ideas for what you might do for your business, but also if you want to learn some of these techniques to be able to see the trends for yourself. And then also, I have an entire third part of the book, which we didn't quite get to talk about, which is very focused on putting trends into action. And so it takes people through like how to run your own workshops around these trends, how to put them, in, how to think about putting them into your business, what resources you should use. So it's very, um, yeah, I, I really kind of focused on trying to build a super, super practical, useful book while also including enough trends to be, um, you know, insp- to inspire you to do something different. Well, and I will say it's a very easy read, meaning it's not super technical like you might expect from some sort of a analytical kind of, you know, thing. And it's got, it's chock full of examples and the workshop stuff at the end, I think is invaluable. Um, Rohit, where can they get the book and where can they find out more about you? Uh, so the book is uh, available on um, Amazon. Um, the hardcover actually comes out uh, very, very shortly, depending on when you're listening to this and how much of a time delay you you have before picking up the, the podcast. Um, and uh, you can learn more about the book, and you can also get a free 82-page excerpt of the book, including all of 15 trends. We didn't quite get to every single one of them, obviously, but you can see what they are totally for free um, at the book's website, which is nonobviousbookalloneword.com. Awesome. Rohit Bargava, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share your insights with us today. I know on behalf of all my listeners, I can tell you it was really awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's show. If there was anything that we mentioned that you missed, we take all the notes for you extensively. And you can visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 141. That stands for episode 141. And, you know, you can leave comments or whatever. Also, I want to ask you if you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. Don't ever miss a future episode of this show. This is a totally free show and it's very easy for you to just automatically get updates on whatever podcast player you happen to be using. Also, if you're a regular listener to the show and you like it, would you do us a favor and visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. That populates a little tweet in your Twitter stream telling your friends that you recommend the show. Also want to remind you about our sponsor, Optin Monster. Definitely check it out, socialmediaexaminer.com slash optin. We'll send you where you need to go to find out all about it. Strongly recommend you check it out. And remember, their exit intent technology really helps you build your list. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. If you're like so many fellow marketers and creators and entrepreneurs, you're probably wondering, how do I put AI to work? Well, be sure to listen to the AI Explored podcast, a new show from Social Media Examiner, hosted by yours truly, Michael Stelzner. Again, Check out the AI Explored podcast.